John chapter 7 this morning, John chapter 7, we come to the end of John chapter 7 today as we look through the last bit. We're going to read a, well, a longer portion of scripture, so we're going to start in verse 25 and we're going to read all the way through the end of John chapter 7 this morning. So it says, Then said some of them of Jerusalem, Is not this he whom they seek to kill? But lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit, we know this man whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. Then cried Jesus in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am, and I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. And as many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then said Jesus unto them, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me. And where I am, thither ye cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Whither will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles, and teach the Gentiles? What manner of saying is this, that he said, Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me? And where I am, thither ye cannot come. In the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. But this spake he of the Spirit, which they that believe on him should receive, for the Holy Ghost was not yet given, because that Jesus was not yet glorified. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, Of a truth, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Shall Christ come out of Galilee? Hath not the scriptures said that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was? So there was division among the people because of him. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, Never man spake like this man. Then answered the Pharisees, Are you also deceived? Have you any rulers or any of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knoweth not the law are cursed. Nicodemus saith unto them, he that came to Jesus by night, being one of them, Doth our law judge any man before it hear him, and know what he doeth? They answered and said unto him, Art thou also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. And every man went unto his own house. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we are thankful for its glorious well of truth. May it bring life to our souls today, no matter where we find ourselves in our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we've seen over the last couple of weeks, this is the Feast of Tabernacles where we find Jesus. 
uh, have been celebrating all week long. It's a feast that runs for eight days, and uh, we're going to come here to the, the very last of those eight days. But in the middle of the feast, we saw Jesus stands up and he begins to teach, and he calls people to hear what he actually says about himself. Not what we want to think about uh, him or what we imagine, but what he actually says about himself. And so he continues teaching, leading up to the last and the great day of the feast. That last day, the last day of the feast, the eighth day, is a Sabbath. So it's a, a day off. So it's like a, a long weekend for the Jews because they get the, the Saturday Sabbath and then they get the Sunday Sabbath that day on the, the eighth day. And that Sabbath is full of celebration. It's one of the most glorious celebrations that Israel has amongst their, their feasts. And Jesus is leading the people as he's speaking through that week and as he's teaching from the middle of the week onward to the great day of the feast, he is leading to see, to show the people that this feast and all that this feast represents is fulfilled in him and to see the glory of what that means for them personally. So, They've been celebrating all week and all of the joy and all of the excitement, the expectation that comes with this feast is all found completely in Jesus and what he will do. Tabernacles, the Feast of Tabernacles is about God's deliverance. It's a, a reminder of how God delivered them out of Egypt and brought them through the, the wilderness and in the wilderness not only delivered them but provided for them along the way and gave them everything they need. It's about God's deliverance and his provisions in very difficult times and in difficult places. It's about God leading his people to freedom and finding freedom in him. Of course, deliverance teaches us about Jesus delivering from sin. And that's at the, the core, that's at the foundation of what this celebration is about, about Jesus being able to deliver from sin. It's a celebration of their provision in the wilderness and that celebration of provision in the wilderness is a reminder to God's people that even in the desert, even in dry and uh, barren land, Jesus not only provides, but satisfies. This is a message of hope for all of us. Believer or unbeliever, if you're here this morning and you're a believer in Jesus Christ, there's a message of hope here in what Jesus says. If you haven't believed Jesus as your saviour, listen to what Jesus says. There is hope here for all of us if we'll listen and follow what he says. Jesus can deliver you from the bondage of sin. And for the believer, Jesus is all you need to be satisfied in your journey to the promised land, to heaven even in hard times. What Jesus offers can radically change your life and the life of those around you. So when I consider these last few words of Jesus on this great feast day and consider what we see here. And the first thing we see is the mystery of the Messiah, the mysteriousness of him as the people see him and uh, their ignorant misunderstanding Verse 25, where we began our, our reading this morning, then some of the Jews, uh, then said some of the Jews of Jerusalem, is not this he whom they seek to kill, but uh, lo, he speaketh boldly, and they say nothing unto him. Do the rulers know indeed that this is the very Christ? Howbeit we know this man, whence he is, but when Christ cometh, no man knoweth whence he is. 
So as Jesus is speaking and as he's been talking and, and preaching and proclaiming these true words, the people have been listening and hearing and some of them are saying, is this the Christ? Is this the one we've been looking for, the, the Messiah? And they begin to wonder, and as they begin to wonder, confusion starts to make its way through the people based on what they hear Jesus say and what they have been taught through all the years and, and been thinking of, of what, what is true, what is, is actually true of Jesus. Part of their confusion, as we see in verse 26, is the people are looking at Jesus, listening to what he has to say, but they're also seeing the Pharisees, who've been condemning him all along, not do anything about it. And so their immediate thought is, well, if the Pharisees, our leaders, aren't correcting him or putting him out, maybe he is. Maybe this is the one we've been looking for because they're not doing anything about it. Israel's been waiting and hoping and expecting the Messiah to come. And this feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, is full of that expectation. It's all about the, the provision, but that provision leading to where he will come and how he will come back. But for most, the thought that Jesus was the Messiah was a fleeting thought. You know, much like, much like Christmas for most people. We'll spend weeks and weeks, or even in the shops now, months and months, preparing and thinking about Christmas. And Christmas Day will come, and we'll have all the joy of that day, and Boxing Day, we forget about it. Half the toys we got are broken by then, we've eaten all the food, we're feeling sick, and we move on with life. And that's how it was with the feast. On this day, maybe this is the Christ. But even as they listen to him, that thought quickly floats away as they move back into life, as they move back into normality. They forget about what they were celebrating. So their first thought is, is this the Christ? But that quickly turns into, it can't be the Christ. He can't be the Christ. They quickly decide he couldn't be. But their decision that he couldn't be the Christ is based on an error of understanding, something they had been taught for years that wasn't true. The Old Testament is full of prophecies of the Messiah, full of, uh, of prophecies about how he will be born and, and that he will die, and it, it prophesies of his resurrection, and it tells of John the Baptist, the forerunner, and, and so many things are prophesied in the Old Testament. But not only were all, those, all these prophecies there and they had learned and grown up with these, but of course, so many traditions had grown up around the Messiah as well. One of those traditions that had grown up around Messiah was that he would come out of obscurity. No one would know where he came from. He would just appear on the scene, rescue the people of Israel and set up his kingdom. And that's why they say, well, we know where he came from and the Messiah, we won't know, he'll just He'll just come. And so they're looking at Jesus going, well, we know he's from Galilee. We know his family. In fact, his family is there. His brothers are, are here. They're saying, so he clearly, because we know him, he can't be the Messiah. There has always been a lot of misunderstanding about who Jesus is. Even today, people think they know who Jesus is based on what we think, based on our own traditions, and not who Jesus actually says he is. 
So Jesus counters that by saying that he has some knowledge, some intimate knowledge that they do not have. But if they would listen, they would understand. Verse 28, Jesus answers and says, Then Jesus cried in the temple as he taught, saying, You both know me, and you know whence I am. I am not come of myself, but he that sent me is true, whom ye know not. But I know him, for I am from him, and he has sent me. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him, because his hour was not yet come. Many of the people believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? So he is a man here, but they don't understand or they don't know as much about Jesus as they think they know. So they say, we know him. We know where he's from. He's from Galilee. We know his family. We've seen him. uh, As you look further down, verse 41 says, others said, this is the Christ. But some said, shall Christ come out of Galilee? So they're certain he's from Galilee knowing, of course, that the prophecies say the Messiah will come from Bethlehem. Verse 52, as it comes to to an end, they answered again, says, Art thou of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee ariseth no prophet. So they think they know Jesus, but they don't. Again, they're basing their thoughts on a limited knowledge of who they think he is, not who he actually is. Now, despite his miracles and his authoritative teaching that he has done over all this time, they're still considering him and considering his claims based on what they say. His family are there. They may even be standing in the crowd listening to him. They're down there for the the feast. They're the ones who, before they came down to Jerusalem, were mocking him and uh, accusing him of, of being a fake But Jesus says, you think you know where I come from, but you don't know. He says, I come from heaven. I come from above. This is one of the most important parts of John's gospel, this concept that he comes from above. Why is John writing this gospel? We saw this from the very beginning. We've seen it repeated over and over and over again. Why is John writing this gospel? So that you will know that Jesus is the Christ the son of the living God. That's what John is trying to show us, and that's what Jesus is saying here. I am not just a man. I am the son of the living God. I have come from the Father. Jesus' message and his purpose are from the Father. He is accomplishing a divine plan, showing that God is real, telling them he knows God. He knows God. They thought they knew God, but they've been showing their ignorance. We suffer from the same problem today, so many of us. We believe that you can't find God in the ordinary, in the mundane. Just like they're looking and saying, you can't find God in Galilee, or just this guy. When God comes, the Messiah comes, He will miraculously appear out of nowhere. He will perform miracles like we have never seen before and and bring in a new age that will just uh, fill us with wonder and awe and we will absolutely know. And today we have the same problem, believing that God doesn't work in the mundane, in the ordinary, that if God is working, it must be miraculous. It must be amazing. 
But the truth is, God's best work is done in the ordinary, in the mundane parts of life, day in, day out. Not extraordinary, not filled with the miraculous, not sending beams of, of lightning down to destroy enemies or, or conquer things or, or not implanting in our heads the great glorious knowledge of God. It's ordinary. It's normal. It's life. God does his greatest work in normal, ordinary, mundane life. Jesus says to them, you, you know my family and you know the town. You've seen my life, but you're not looking deep enough. You're not looking deep enough. As Jesus lives an ordinary life, he is doing extraordinary things. Verse 31 says, And many have believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man hath done? Superficial belief is the same in every age. No matter how many miracles, it's never enough. It's never enough. We always want one more. Another miracle to prove. If they were paying attention, if they were listening to him, they would recognize he had the true knowledge of the Father. Christianity sees that God is never absent, even in the ordinary, even in the everyday life. Just like God is present or was present every day in the wilderness, so he is present <clears throat> every day. In our life. And so Jesus brings us to one of his great statements that he is the living water. As he responds to the people, he tells in verse 32 it says, The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then they said unto him, Yet a little while I am with you, and then I go unto him that sent me. Ye shall seek me, and shall not find me, and where I am, there you cannot come. Then said the Jews among themselves, Where will he go that we shall not find him? Will he go unto the dispersed among the Gentiles and teach the, the Gentiles? So as he, he begins, he reminds them and he gives them an indication of his future. He talks and gives a reference to his resurrection and to his ascension here. He says, You think you know me, think you know where I came from, but I'm going somewhere where you cannot come. You can't follow me. The religious authorities here are trying to silence him. They want to silence the conversation around Jesus. So their intention here to kill Jesus uh, grows and intensifies as it continues to hear his speaking. But rather than avoiding the confrontation, so they send people to try and silence the conversation. And rather than Jesus step back and slip away or not say anything more about it and, and stir things up, Jesus actually makes it worse, as he sometimes does. And he tells them that he is going to go to heaven, and they are not. I'm going a place, and you cannot come. You cannot come with me. He's going back where he came from. 
Further, he's saying that when he goes back to where he came from, if they continue to disbelieve, they will not be there. Despite all of their hope, despite all of their expectation, they will not be there. It's interesting that when Jesus says, I'm going to back to my father. And when I go back to my father, I will go there and you will not be. When he says that, the first thing to come into their mind is not heaven. They immediately assume it's something else because it, they couldn't possibly fathom that the kingdom would not be theirs. So Jesus must be speaking of something else. He couldn't possibly be speaking of the kingdom. He couldn't possibly be speaking of eternal destiny because we're Jews, we will be there. And so they think, well, where is he talking about? Where, where he's going to go that we can't go. He, he must be going out to, to the dispersed, the Jews who've spread through the world, and he'll go talk to them, and he'll go talk to the Gentiles and try and build up his own little thing amongst the, the, the people throughout the world. So their response to Jesus is to mock him. He can't get believers here, so he's going to go out to the Gentiles and he'll fool them, and he'll find some followers out there. You know what the irony of that is? As we read the Gospel of John here, Jesus has gone to the world. John is writing to the world so that they will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So while they mock, he's going to go to the Gentiles. Jesus did go to the Gentiles. And in doing that, he gives an invitation to life. What manner of saying is this, verse 36, that he said, you shall seek me and shall not find me, and where I am thither you cannot come. Then we come to the last day, the great day of the feast. In the last day, that great day of the feast, verse 37, Jesus stood and cried, saying, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He identifies the need here. This was that great day. It's the, the final day of the feast is, is full of excitement. It, it's a wonderful day of celebration and joy. It's the culmination of all their expectation and all the hope and all the praise that they've had through this whole week. The, the pinnacle of their praise. The feast finishes with a, a great thanksgiving to God and for God's work and a prayer of blessing for what is to come. And it's a glorious moment to, to behold. The priests, as I mentioned before, they, they take a, a pitcher and they go down to the pool of Siloam, which is a, a spring that runs through, and they fill that pitcher up with, with water from that spring. When they come back and they come through the gate of the, the temple, the, all, all the, 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 the shofar is blown in, in praise, and, and they begin to walk around the altar. And they walk around the altar, and as they walk around the altar, the choir is singing the Halal Psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. And they're singing, and the, the people are, are walking and dancing and praising God all through the temple as the priests walk around the, uh, the, the altar. And as they come to the end of Psalm 118, when they get to the end, all the men in there who have in their hands, they have uh, myrtle twigs and palm branches in, uh, uh, let me get this right, I think they're in their right hand. And in the left hand, they have citrus fruit. 
And as they go around that last time and as they sing the last parts of Psalm 118, the men raise the branches and they start shaking the branches and holding the citrus fruit up as singing, Give thanks to the Lord. The whole temple erupts with praise. And the priests take that water and they pour it into a bowl next to the altar as a symbol of God's blessing for the fruit to come and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on his people. It's such a time of joy and anticipation, not just for that day, but for what is to come when the Messiah comes. On that day, so on that day when the people are going to be marching around here and shaking their leaves and praising God, give glory to the Lord and pouring out that water in the hope of the coming spirit and the coming kingdom, Jesus stands in the middle of the temple and he says, this is all about me. That water you're pouring into the basin, I am the living water. Everything you've celebrated for a week is looking at me. These are a people that thirst. They are in need and they are desperate for life. And so are we. Every one of us here is in need. We are a needy people in many different ways. So as he identifies that, that need, he offers the solution. Jesus doesn't just say that they're a needy people. He tells them that he is the solution to their need. He is what they crave for. He is what they have been longing for. Jesus says, if you are in desperate need, if you thirst, if you need life, if you need satisfaction, he will quench that desire. Whatever need you have as a person in need, he is that, and he invites you to come. Listen to his words. If any man thirsts, that if anyone is in need, if anyone is longing for something, searching for satisfaction, searching for joy, need, let him come to me. And drink. He invites us to come to him. Notice that in that invitation, it is not an invitation to the temple. It's not an invitation to church. It's not an invitation to religion. It's an invitation to Jesus. Your primary need isn't church. Your primary need is Jesus. Now, after you have Jesus, that's when the church becomes important to you and a, and a part of your need. But fundamentally, for all of us, believer and unbeliever, fundamentally, we need Jesus. Amen. Drink what he offers. Accept and believe him. Like the woman at the well, Jesus offers her living water. She will never thirst again. Psalm 36, 
psalmist says, they shall be abundantly satisfied with the fatness of thy house. You shall make them to drink of the rivers of pleasure. For with thee is the fountain of life. Matthew chapter 5, as Jesus gives the, the Beatitudes, as he stands on the mountain, he speaks to the people, he says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they shall be satisfied. He imparts abundant life. He says in verse 38, He that believeth on me, as the scripture said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. He imparts abundant life, life that is satisfying. Now, it doesn't mean that you have what you need inside of you. He says, out of your belly shall flow rivers of living water. It doesn't mean you have what you need inside of you. It means that Jesus will put in you his life, and it will never, ever run dry. You know, the reason the priests went to the pool of Siloam is because it was a living spring. It was always bubbling up. And that's what Jesus says he is. I am the living spring, always bubbling up, never running dry. What Jesus offers is satisfying. That picture of the water is a picture that God's life would constantly be bubbling up inside of you. A water and a life that cleanses and purifies that washes us pure. Paul says to Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done that we obtain salvation, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. He cleanses us not just on the outside. It's not just the appearance of cleanliness. It's not just the appearance of being clean. But he actually washes away our sin. Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. Come now and let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. It's living. It's flowing. It's cleansing. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He satisfies, he cleanses and purifies, he refreshes as living water for a thirsty soul, he is refreshing. The apostles preach in Acts chapter 3, Repent ye and therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. Why is it so refreshing? Why is Jesus so refreshing, so, so filling and cleansing and satisfying? Because he cleanses the burden, the power, and the guilt of sin away. He washes it all away. Sin ruins us in every way. In every possible way, it ruins us. It sucks the vitality right out of us. The life that we have, that God has given us, is taken away by sin. David, when he is talking about his great sin in the Old Testament, 
He says, it, it, it did that. It sucked the life out of him. It says in Psalm 32, when I kept silent, this is when, I, when I didn't confess, when I didn't look to God for forgiveness, when I kept silent, my bones waxed old. Because I felt like an old man. Through my roaring all the day long, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. In a life that should be filled with living, refreshing water, he says, it was like a desert. The life was sucked from me. But his living water is revitalizing. It promises true refreshing. Jesus calls us in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But he says this, he says, I will give you living water. And then John helps us understand a little bit more of the depth of this, because this, he says, he spoke of the Holy Spirit that he would give to all those who believe. That was one of the great hopes of the tabernacles, of the Feast of Tabernacles, was the coming of the Messiah, the, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on God's people. Here we're told that he infuses his people with the Holy Spirit, that they indwell, are indwelt by God. So, how is this life that Jesus says he gives constant and overflowing? Because of the constant presence of God himself. It is a living water because the living God is always present with his believers. He says to the disciples before he would, would be crucified, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but it seeth him not, neither know him, but you know him, for he dwelleth in you and shall be with you. God puts his spirit within us, his very presence. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. What, know you not that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God? His life doesn't leave us because he doesn't leave us, ever. He is always there. That is, you have within you the one who refreshes and revitalizes. Believer, the living water is within. It's not a one-time injection of life. Like, here, you've had your injection, it's good for three months, then you need booster number four. It's good forever. Why? Because he is always present. He never leaves. He indwells. And in his indwelling, he overflows. The Spirit works through and out of you. The Spirit is the giver of life. The Spirit is the one who empowers us to overcome sin. But not only to overcome sin, he empowers us to live for God. The Spirit gives us understanding of God's word. The Spirit provides access to God through prayer. 
He gives us gifts so that we can serve Christ. And he develops within us the fruits of righteousness. The outpouring of the Spirit is what the people longed for. On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preaches, Peter says, that day is here. God's Spirit has come. It's what Jesus is promising. Believer, whatever wilderness you are wandering in, remember, fresh, living water is available. There is divided response to Jesus' call here. In the last few verses, we see a number of responses. I'll just point out three. Verse 40 through verse 44, thereabouts, there is intrigue. Some see it and say, well, he is the Christ, and, and maybe he is worth believing. Some would see the truth, they would believe. It still appears they still have some questions. There's uncertainty around them, and it's, it still seems strange. But there's division among the people. Some say, yes, he's worth believing, and some say, oh, I'm not sure. Says there's division. Jesus will always divide. He always has. Spiritual truth isn't easy to grasp, and it can't be attained in physical ways. Not only is there intrigue amongst the people as they debate on whether he should be believed or shouldn't be believed, and some want to and some don't, But there's also a display of ignorance here. The Pharisees and the chief priests have sent temple officers to arrest Christ. Those officers come back to the chief priests and the Pharisees without Christ. And they say, where is he? They say, well, we've never heard anyone talk like this man. And the Pharisees say to them, say, what, have you been deceived too? Do you see us believing them? Do you see us believing him? So you've gone, you've listened to him, he's deceived you, and we're the only ones who know the truth. Listen to us, is what they say. Don't go out there and listen to the crowds. Don't listen to what he has to say. We don't believe him. You shouldn't believe him. That's what they say. The religious leaders try to push their authority. There are a lot of people in this world who don't believe Jesus and who don't want to believe Jesus Because someone who has influence in their life says not to. Oh, that person that I respect says they don't like Jesus, so I won't like Jesus. That influencer says it's just nothing, so I don't want that religion. Because they don't. My dad told me, take it or leave it. I respect my dad, so... I don't believe it either. There's a lot of people out there just like that. Somebody told them, don't believe Jesus. And they made that decision to not believe Jesus because somebody else told them. There's intrigue, there's ignorance, and then there's investigation. The last few verses of our text brings us back to Nicodemus. Man, we haven't seen in several years in the progress of Jesus' life. Nicodemus returns here to view, and he clearly carries authority amongst the leaders. He is probably one of the preeminent teachers of the Pharisees. He doesn't yet appear to be a follower of Jesus, but he certainly is continuing to search. He wants to know more. 
And maybe that's you here this morning. Maybe you're still searching. You've heard Jesus. You, you think the gospel is probably true. But it's taking your time to think through it. Consider it. You're still searching. Nicodemus' path to believe Jesus took several years. It took a while. We don't see him as an actual believer until Christ's death. It doesn't appear even here, which is about six months before that, that he's still there yet. He's been learning. He's been investigating. He is having to overcome years and years of training and teaching. He's one of the preeminent teachers of the law. If he's going to believe Jesus, there's a whole lot of baggage he has to deal with and determine, was it right before or is Jesus right? Do I abandon everything I've given my life for and follow Jesus or don't I? Don't reject Jesus because someone tells you to. At the same time, don't accept Jesus because someone tells you to. I want you to accept Jesus. If you haven't believed Jesus Christ is your Savior, I want you to accept Jesus. But don't accept Jesus because you want to follow someone. The person who tells you they want to believe. They want you to believe. Accept Jesus because you want to follow Jesus. Because you have seen that Jesus is true. And if that takes you time... Take that time. Understand who Jesus is and grab on to the true Jesus. Not the Jesus somebody tells you you should believe or shouldn't believe. Believe the true Jesus that we find in the Gospels, in the Word of God. Like the wilderness Israel was in, this life, too, can be a dry and barren land. The power, the burden, the guilt, and the shame of, of sin leaves us dry, needy, desperate for life-giving water. Jesus is that water. Jesus is life. He is the satisfaction. He is the refreshment that you need. He invites you to come. He invites you to drink of him and to find life. To find satisfaction. That is, come to him. Believe that he is the son of God who came to forgive sin and to give new life. Only Jesus can give you what you need. Only Jesus can satisfy. Believer, within you right now is a river of living water. The very presence of God. Within you now. He is there to satisfy your deepest longings, to fill your soul with goodness. Far too often, 
we live as if we are still in a dry and barren land. So heed the warning of Paul. Do not quench the spirit. When we stop drinking from the river of life, we cut ourselves off from what sustains us. Seek God. Seek his forgiveness. Learn David's lesson. I read to you from Psalm 32 before where David said that his, his uh, moisture, his life had been sucked dry. And so he follows that with this. I acknowledge my sin unto God, and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess, confess my transgression unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. His life came back. This morning, I simply give to you the words of Jesus. If any man thirst, let him come to him and drink. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our opportunity to see your word this morning. To hear the words of life. I pray that your spirit, which lives within us as believers, would have freedom we would not quench, hold him back, but allow him to teach, guide, instruct, to fill us with life as he guides us in your word. Lord, may the Spirit also have freedom amongst those who do not believe, that they would be convicted of their sin and see in Christ the life they could have. So we ask for your blessing and your work in us today. In Jesus' name. Amen.